Today's episode is brought to you by www.thestardraft.com. Hollywood award season is right around the corner, but let's be real, it never really left. Anyway, that means it's time to play everyone's favorite fantasy game. And no, I'm not talking about fantasy foosball. Draft a team of celebrities, and when they score wins and nominations through award season, your team earns points. At the end of Oscar night, the top scorer across all leagues will take home a cash prize. So create a league with friends or join a league to make new ones. Drafts are held every night. Play today at www.thestardraft.com. Draft celebrities, slay your friends, win money. Uh, it looks like you all hated me so much that you've given me this award for it. That it can be about the performance and not the politics. This moment so much bigger than me. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. And thank all of you who voted for me. And all of you who didn't, please excuse me. I deserve this. Thank you. And welcome back to Academy Queens. I always wondered what it felt like to take a tip. I'm Joey Gentile. And I'm up to my neck in nuns. I'm Brandon Stanwyck. And this is Academy Queens, your LGBT guide through the Academy Awards per decade per category. And this is the class of 1945. Big sigh. This is the end of an era of the series as a regular show. Brandon. From 2019 in November, when I first uh, hit you up, did you ever think you'd be here? No, I did not think it would go this long. Um, you know, I just wasn't sure exactly where we were going, if it was even going to be a hit. I I think we had our initial conversations, and I think we were like, we'll have maybe 12 listeners. And we we were like half joking, but also like half serious. We really didn't know. And then we ended up getting a bit of a following and we met so many people through Twitter and through podcasting that we just kind of kept going. And it's been really wonderful. We've met so many cool people. We've had so many cool people on this show. We've been on so many other people's shows. And um, it's been a fun ride these last few years. It really has. And the thing is, is like, you know, this is. This is kind of like an end of an era but it's really not because you and I are still working together and like obviously we're friends and now and like you know you, you know you still come back to Cleveland I'll be you know heading to Texas more and then there's other things on the horizon but it, it, it's kind of crazy because it's bittersweet too because it really is like this is it like there's no more Patreon there's no more uh, you know seasons of shows it'll be like Hey, we're going to, you know, put out a show, you know, once a year for the Oscars for current year. And then they're like, that's it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so we're still around. It's just not it's not the show. It's not the, the regular series, but it's kind of like ah, we made it. We've got other things happening, which are very exciting for the both of us. And, you know, it's just it's been crazy. And I can't thank you enough for agreeing to meet a stranger off of Twitter at a coffee shop. 
I can't thank enough Andrew Carden for putting together your list of 100 best Oscar-nominated performances that gave me the inspiration to create Academy Queens. And I can't thank Margaret Avery enough for being a boss-ass bitch in The Color Purple because all three of those things brought you and I together to create this chaotic magic, and I'm here for it. Yeah, it's been really great. Uh, Thanks also for just bringing me on, thinking this weird stranger I've never met in life would be cool to co-host with. And uh, you invited me to get coffee with you, and I did. And we ended up having some kind of weird chemistry, and we vibed in kind of a, you know, uh, a complimentary way. And uh, I think it ended up working out. Absolutely. And I am so excited to finish this with you. It's such an interesting year, um, because I don't know about you, I would say overall, this is not a bad year. In fact, it's probably, in my opinion, out of every year we have done, one of the strongest supporting actress lineups I've ever seen thus far. It is stronger than I expected it to be. Yes. Uh, when we when we picked this year, it was basically because Mildred Pierce is a really big one for you know actress sexuals and whatnot and we pretty much figured well we can't end the show without talking about mildred pierce and of course this year also comes with you know ingrid bergman and greer garson and so many other people that we've talked about um in previous episodes so it made sense and going into it i had seen just a few of these movies in the lead and supporting lineup actually i think i had only seen mildred pierce and bits and pieces of dorian gray but um i didn't expect it to be as strong in both categories Um, yes, I would say supporting actress, huge. I am a little underwhelmed with, with best actress though. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's only one that I really dislike. Well, one and a half. I will get to it. You know, when you say that, I kind of agree with, actually, I agree with that statement. So I wonder if we're going to match up here. Yeah. Okay. This is exciting now. Um, well, uh, let's dive in. Let's give the children what they want. And uh, before we do that, though, for the final time, Brandon, who do you think I'm going to choose from this year? Um, I'm going to start with lead for a second. For some reason, when I watched The Bells of St. Mary's, I just had a weird feeling that you might go Ingrid Bergman here, because I don't think you've ever given it to her yet on the show. And I think we've talked about her, what, three times now? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Anastasia, uh, Gaslight, and... Uh, Orient Express, and I don't think you've given it to her yet. So well, I mean, I think Sonata as well. Oh, that's right, duh. Mm-hmm. And I um I think this might be the one. Uh, so I think it might be Ingrid Bergman for you in lead. For supporting, I'm just gonna go with Anne Blythe. I think you might have bonded with Vita a little bit. <laughs> I think you might have a lot in common. So you might <laughs> give her the win. Oh, Kevin Jacobson said red flag, red flag, red flag. <laughs> um, did you see that tweet that I put yes. out? <laughs> I was like, maybe she's not the villain here. Uh, very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, all right. For lead, I think you actually agree with the Academy here. I think you're going to say Joan Crawford. Um, maybe Jean Tierney, because I feel like you might shock me a la Irene Dunn and Barbara Stanwyck when we did, what was that, 1937? Mm-hmm. Um. So I think those are the only two options that you would go for in this lineup. However, I do think you'll agree with Joan. Supporting, I'm not sure. You could agree with 
the Academy and Anne Revere could do it. I could also see you going for Joan Loring, but something about Eve Arden is speaking to me. So I'm going to say Joan Crawford, Eve Arden. You're going to go Mildred Pierce, ladies. Okay, cool. All right. Well, as a, well, the reminder, I should say, not as, well, doesn't matter either way. As a reminder, your supporting actress nominees of 1945 were Eve Arden and Anne Blythe in Mildred Pierce. Anne Revere in National Velvet, Angela Lansbury in The Picture of Dorian Gray, and Joan Loring in The Corn is Green. Let us start with Angela Lansbury. For the last time, we have now covered all of her Oscar nominations. You and I have given her the win for Manchurian Candidate. Let's talk about her here as Sybil Vane, her second of three nominations in The Picture of Dorian Gray. Going into Oscar night, remember, Precursors don't really mean a thing here in this time period of film awards history. But she does win the Golden Globe for Supporting Actress. And in the picture of Dorian Gray, again, Angela Pace Sybil Vane, who is a showgirl, a singer. She is the ball of the bell, the star of the show that Dorian falls for. And she has a fatal ending. So what do we think? Brandon, you're up. So I really like Angela Lansbury in this. Um, I had seen parts of this movie. I don't think I'd ever seen it in its entirety from start to finish because I'm a big fan of the novel. Uh, This is one of those books that I read in high school and I should have known I was gay by how much I loved it. And it's one of those books that I would cite just as a favorite whenever people would ask um, because it's, you know, it's goth and it's witty and uh, tragic and macabre. And I dig it. Going into this... um, I, it's, so it's been a long time since I read the book and I can't speak to how you know, loyal it is, quote unquote, but I had no idea that Angela Lansbury would be gone in like 40 minutes, spoiler alert. Um, so I was like sitting, I was watching this movie and I think uh, Seth was doing something in the house and he knew I was watching it for the show and I pointed out, you know, who Angela Lansbury was and who I was watching it for. And then the very next scene, they mentioned that she was dead and I was like, oh, Okay. And so I just spent the last hour of the movie just watching it because, you know, I had to finish it because that's how I am. But I was shocked that she was gone. Now, that being said, I feel as though her loss is felt. Um, I missed her when she was gone. You know, that's always a great sign of a strong performance. And um, I'm not going to lie, the guy who plays Dorian Gray is kind of bland. And it's really unfortunate considering how cool that character is on the page. And the scenes with Angela Lansbury, I feel, are some of his best because I feel like she pulls something out of him or maybe she's adding layers to him on her own because she is simply that good. But, um, yeah, it was very sad when she was gone because she was so good when she was there. Uh, What do you think? Well, to answer your question, uh, the actor who played Dorian Gray, his name is Herd Hatfield. And we've actually seen him before when we talked about Crimes of the Heart because he plays old granddaddy in that um so that is him and i agree that he is very bland i had never seen this before i'd heard about it and you know i knew it was a horror film that was one of the um, few horror films due to the story and the and and the source material that was ever nominated for you know some above the line categories at the academy awards i did not like this film maybe i need to give it a second shot 
or even read the source material to fully grasp it because I was very bored with this movie throughout the whole thing. Now, my only introduction with Dorian Gray at any point in my life was, I don't know if you got to check out Netflix's reboot of The Adventures of Sabrina. There, there was like a Dorian Gray character in there. And I was like, oh yeah, wait, that's that Angela Lansbury movie. So I knew of the character and of the movie had not seen it. Angela Lansbury, girl, I don't know what the fuck you're doing in this. I don't, I don't get it. Um, this is not great. Um, like her Gaslight nomination the year before, I'm left very underwhelmed. I've got a weird taste of mouth from this one, which to me doesn't make sense with her like resume of nominations, considering how badass she is in the Manchurian Candidate. And, you know, you know, I've given her an Oscar win before, but these first two nominations, I don't understand why she's nominated, why she's in this lineup. And that's unfortunate as a whole, because Angela Lansbury is a goddess. I mean, hello, Murder, She Wrote. I'm My co-host to the show is the future star of Murder, She Wrote, the requel. So there's that. Love her. Love you. She's it. You're it. Period. But not here. I don't like it. Yeah, I'm suddenly getting flashbacks to our 1944 episode where I was like, she's adding something to this movie that's making it more interesting. Because I feel like whether you like Angela Lansbury or not, I feel like that is true with all three of her nominations. She is adding another flavor to the movie she's in. Um, would you say that's at least true? Um, I would say so because and maybe... Okay, so here's here's something. I think she's better in National Velvet than she is here. Mm, I didn't even know she was in that until I was watching it. Yeah, I didn't either. And so I find that to be interesting. So she's up against uh, her co-star, Anne Revere, who ends up winning, who plays her mom in that movie. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she's so much better in this movie. And she's got almost as much of nothing, if not less, than what she has here. However, to answer your question specifically, I do think she brings something to it. Angela Lansbury has such a thick Cockney accent that I don't know if it's her speech patterns that make her stand out or maybe just the talent that she is in general. Because, I mean, here she's got a huge musical number. And by huge, I don't mean like Moulin Rouge. I mean, like, her character who's a singer has a has a singing moment. But that's her big moment in this film. So she brings that. <laughs> yeah. Did you feel like anything was missing when she was gone? Did you feel her presence uh, vanish? Honestly, I shut off the film. Oh, okay. I did not finish it because I was so not into it. And I made sure that she didn't come back at any point, though. Like, I skimmed through it really quick. And I was like, nope, don't see her. I'm done. I I can't answer that. Okay. But then again, remember, you are the one who sat through all of Who is Harry Kellerman when I said don't. So I expect you to always finish it. I yeah. Won't. As far as adaptations go, from what I remember, this this version is very tepid. It is more, it is duller than I expected it to be. I actually really like George Sanders in this film. I thought he was sassy as fuck, and I quite liked it. I think he kept me going in the second half of the movie um, because he is just so bitchy, uh, basically. So at least when Angela Lansbury was gone, I had George Sanders to to keep the energy up. But um, heard, dude, I don't know what he was doing in this movie, but the answer is nothing. He was doing nothing in this movie, which is unfortunate because he's playing one of the best titular characters in gothic literature, basically. So that's unfortunate. 
But yeah, Angela Lansbury is innocent in my eyes. I don't know if it's a direct remake or they're just using the source material, but there was a 2009 version with Rebecca Hall and Colin Firth. Have you I seen that? I never saw that. No. Yeah, I'm not sure if they've ever truly done a remake of this. Maybe, I mean, there's a version in 1970 uh, with the Sybil character and a guy named Helmet who plays Dorian. Um, I don't know why that name just made me laugh. It kind of did, though. Um, but apparently there's a, another remake that came out in 2021 with Emma McDonald in the role and Alfred Enoch and Finn Whitehead. Uh, it, so, you know, this is a movie that keeps getting a remake, it seems, every 30, 40 years. Well, oh, um, using it too. Hell yeah. Who? Joanna Lumley, Patsy Stone. Mm. Um, Penny Dreadful is a really cool show that had uh, Dorian Gray as a character. Uh, Reeve Carney played him pretty right. well. And then, if you'll recall, A League of Extraordinary Gentlemen mm. uh, with Sean Connery. Stuart Townsend, uh, who played Lestat and Queen of the Damned, played um, Dorian Gray in that film. Oh, Lestat. Rest in peace, Aaliyah. Yes. Um, do you have anything else on Angela before we move on? Um, I don't think so. All right, let's go to probably who's remembered least in this lineup because her film is impossible to find. Um, and that is Joan Loring as Bessie Waddy in The Corn is Green. This is her sole nomination. Um, and she is one of the first Asian-born actresses to ever have a nomination at the Academy. She was born in Hong Kong and lived there until she was a little girl. So that is a Academy fact or Academy Fun fact? Yeah, there's that. Um, so, in the corner screen, which is a Betty Davis starring picture, um, Joan uh, again plays Bessie, who is a girl who has her sights set on more than her books, and that is boys. And I can relate to that. And she is a conniving little cunt, let me tell you. This lineup has Anne Blythe and Joan Loring in here. There is a theme. So, Brandon, what do you think? So, when it came to Bessie and Vita, I honestly wasn't sure which one you would relate to more. Uh, these thoughts did pass through my mind. Um, because Bessie is quite the little cunt, and we love her for it. Um, Corn is Green, I thought, was kind of a boring film, to be perfectly frank. Um, I, I watched it basically in the morning before work. And um, it did not perk me up in the slightest. Uh, I thought Betty was fine. Um, I thought uh, everyone else in the movie was pretty much fine, including our um, supporting actor uh, nominee, John Dahl, who, um, instead of this movie, watched Rope. He's very good in Rope. But um, Joan Loring is definitely the um, bright spot for me because whenever she was on screen i at least felt engaged uh she is a lot in this movie like she's kind of always at a 10 and i'm not even going to hold that against her because i kind of think the movie needs it now i'm sure this movie has its fans uh and whatnot and unfortunately i'm not one of them uh but joan loring did keep me interested i was into every little diabolical thing and bitchy comment that she was making um i, I dug it for the most part how about you so 
I understand why you might have thought that I would relate to her, and I do. So thank you for that. Um, side note, there is a 1979 remake with Katherine Hepburn in the Lily Moffat role, directed by George Cukor. I actually kind of want to check that out because I actually weirdly enjoyed this movie. I didn't know really what it was about, and the title is intriguing, and not reading anything about it going into it, I was like, oh, I w- this is not what I was expecting. I was expecting some kind of, like, farmer story, some kind of, like, Places in the Heart-esque film, and it's not about that um, at all, and I kind of enjoyed it for what it was. It is definitely, I would say, and maybe you agree, I don't know, the least seen, I think, out of these nominees which is unfortunate because I feel like every nominee should be seen equally. Um, but yeah, I I like her. She's feisty and fun. I I she is definitely on a ten the entire time. Um, it's also great to see a younger Mildred Dunnock here. Uh, we got a lot of Mildred Dunnock in our last couple of episodes, all in all. Um, but yeah, this is uh, I would say John Dahl. I haven't seen any of his other films, but I was impressed here with him. So. Uh, I would say thus far, I think he's in my first place, but I don't think I've seen any of the others. Um, but yeah, for Joan Loring, there's just something about her Bessie that's annoying and spicy and you want more of her, but you want her to go the fuck away. And you know what? Relatable. I get it. It's like you guys with me on this. It's fine. But no, it's, it, I think she's, uh, I think she's a lot, and I think it works for her. And I don't know if any other actress could have played this role at the 10 she needed to constantly be. Because, boy, is she good here. Yeah. I mean, she is always at a 10. It it reads as somewhat one note in that sense. But I think it's a, a good note that the movie desperately needed, um, in my opinion. Uh, she is sort of... Um, grating she's really annoying and i think you know intentionally of course and it's what kind of keeps the conflict going and keeping things interesting and it's kind of all on her and she does a really good job with it i think because frankly if it weren't for her performance then there'd be no reason to watch this movie yeah and did you get like she looked like leslie brown to you or was that just me I didn't think of it at the time, but now that I'm kind of picturing them in my head side by side, I can see a, a bit of a resemblance, I suppose. Yeah. Joan Loring invented Haley Mills, though. Oh, Joan Loring in the chalk garden. I'm imagining it. It would it'd be better, though, wouldn't it, with it, Joan Loring? It would, but I, is there any true way to actually save a film like the chalk garden? I think the chalk garden does have potential. I think I said that during the, the episode. I just didn't quite care for what we get yeah as a whole i feel like it does have potential fair it, it needed joan loring fair i would agree um do you have anything else oh you know who's not a fan of joan loring who's that shout out lucas what's up luke oh one of our biggest fans mm-hmm. not a fan he's not a fan of it at all so uh with that said let's move on to mildred pierce ladies Eve Arden as Ida Korn. This is her sole nomination, which doesn't make sense. We've talked about it before, and we'll bring it up again. Why? In Mildred Pierce. Um, You know, Eve Arden here, again, plays Ida, who is the right-hand gal and the best friend to Joan Crawford's Mildred Pierce, who doesn't take any shit, sees right through Vita, and gets the biggest I told you so in the end. 
Um, with that said, she's also very much snitches get stitches type of woman. She's not going to turn her back on you. Just don't fuck her over. So, Eve Arden, what do you think? So, speaking of inventing other actresses in other movies, uh, when I was re-watching Mildred Pierce, I got the impression that Eve Arden invented Diane Ladd in Alice. Oh, my God. It's a very <laughs> similar type of supporting character in both sort of attitude and role and profession, um, and, which I liked. I was a big fan of Diane Ladd in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And I like Eve Arden here. Um, I really like this uh, no-nonsense um, co-worker, best friend, turned employee sort of uh, person. And she was sort of one of those people. Anytime she was on screen, I kind of perked up. I was a little happy. I had a little smirk. I was like, oh, she's going to tell someone off. She's going to tell it like it is. And I really dug it. I wish she was in more of this movie. I understand, you know, why she's not. She's not really the focus in any sense. But whenever she is there, she brings... Uh, a, a flavor of tenacity to every scene that she's in. And I, I really like it. How about you? Yeah, I really, really like Eve Arden here. Um, of course, you know, she's most famously known for Grease and Grease 2 as Miss McGee. Um, and we talked about her with, what was it, the the dark arc at the top of the stairs? Oh, was she I in believe? that? Yeah, because remember that was the one that had... Um, Oh, what's her name? Where we were like, how did Eve, uh, how did Eve Arden miss when she was like that? Oh, the, Shirley. Um, yeah. Shirley Jones. Yes. 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 And because she was, she was her aunt and she was so much better than Shirley Jones there. And so she should definitely have at least two nominations. Um, but Eve Arden is fantastic here. I, you know, I definitely wish there was more of her. I do agree with you on that. But there is something about the gritty dirtiness of Mildred Pierce, which I'm sure we'll get into more, um, that when Eve Arden comes on, it's like a shot of bourbon and a soapy bath because you're like, you have to clean all the gook off and then you have to sass your way back into this and like mentally get there. I, you know, she brings such, and tenacity is the, a, the, a really great word for that. She brings such a tenacity to this performance that we have seen it try to be replicated with Melissa Leo and it does not work. It does not work. I don't know if you have you seen Mildred Pierce, the HBO remake. Yeah, I saw it I back saw it. when it aired, so it's been a minute. But I do, I have seen it. I do not like it. I need to revisit it. I actually felt like revisiting it after I finished the this version. Yeah. Because I remember liking Kate Winslet in it, but I don't remember how my feelings on this series as a whole. Yeah, I, I I don't I remember not liking it. I was very underwhelmed by it. I think I was very underwhelmed by everybody with it. Um, so there, you know, that was <laughs> that was a thing. Um, but you know, Mildred Pierce is a great film. It is one of the most enjoyable films of the golden era of Hollywood. Um, you know, I have been watching a lot more of these movies from the 40s, and as a whole, I don't love them. Um, there's something about this like acting style at this time that's so studio-y, it just doesn't work for me, but I am opening up and broadening. And what is that called? Growth. And Eve Arden is a standout during this time for me. So I love her in this. I wish there was more of her, but I understand why there isn't. So real quick thing before someone ats you, I just looked it up really quick. Mayor Winningham played Ida in the miniseries. Wait, then Melissa Leo? Melissa Leo played uh, Lucy. Uh, Lucy? 
who I don't recall her in, I don't remember that character by name in this version, but she played a character named Lucy. Why don't I remember Mayor Winningham then? Um, I don't know. But uh, I'm, I'm sure she is also good. We liked her in that other film that we talked about. Oh, yes, yes. Georgia. It was called Georgia, right? Yes. 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 Well, when it comes to Ida having <laughs> such little screen time here, uh, I'm of two mm-hmm. minds about it because, of course, I want more because she is so good. And yet at the same time, I kind of like that she's this little colonel in the movie who just kind of pops up when she needs to and does what she needs to do, and then she goes away, and the focus stays on our protagonist here. So I do want to throw out that I do love these little supporting roles that aren't in as much of the movie as you might think. Yeah, I mean, this is a Penelope Milford effect-styled role, I would say. Um, This is a character who definitely does what she needs to do, she keeps the story going, and then she's the lube for the wheels of the story. And, um, you know, one of my favorite moments in the film is when when uh, Vita gets that new car and uh, I was like, who parked the boat out front? Like, she's totally just dogging, you know, Mildred's daughter in front of Mildred. And Mildred is like, yeah, she's a cunt, but I still got to do it for her. I'm, I don't know. I just I love that sassiness, that real friend character, because I'm like, that's me as a person. I'll just tell you how it is. So I I kind of identify with everybody here this year. Mm. Circling back to season one with the Penelope Milford effect. Crazy, crazy. We could not let all of the tropes go without one last dig somewhere. I mean, you know who could have played Ida really well? Karen Black. Obviously. But you know who could have played Mildred really well? Sharon Stone. Well, yes. Yes. Okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, always. But I was looking for Madeline (laughs) Kahn. I didn't know how to segue that. I was like, all right, moving. No. Uh, Yes, Sharon Stone, Madeline Kahn, Karen Black. Give them all to me. Give them all. (sighs) Also, if we're going to do that, a young Vita could have been played by a young Queen Coming out. That would have been too young. But you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Anyway, shall we move to Vita? Okay. All right. And Blythe who is, I believe, with um, the second youngest currently living supporting actress nominee, the oldest being Angela Lansbury right now. So there's that. And this is her sole nomination. She has nothing going in on Oscar night. And she plays Vita Pierce, who in the film, and many people say is the villain, um, who is a, deci- a deciful, deceitful little cunt and, you know, will do anything in, to make sure her dreams come true. And not a lot of people like her, and I just think she's misunderstood, but I want to hear what you have to say. Well, I swear if Anne or Angela die within a month of this episode, it's all your fault. <laughs> just throwing that out there, because you have a streak of killing actors by just invoking their names. Do <laughs> so. Um, t- going to Anne. I think Anne is really great here. Um, I think she is the perfect villain for this movie. And by villain, I'm just meaning like in the. I'm just uh, in the classical sense, like with uh, Mildred being our protagonist and Vita being the the force of opposition, um, the conflict. 
Um, I know I know she's very misunderstood and you're going to come to her defense in a little bit. So villain in quotation marks. But I really dig her here. Um, like um, Eve Arden, I enjoy every scene that she's in. So basically combined, I enjoy every scene uh, because all these women are just throughout the film and great. But um, I really like Anne Blythe here. I'm surprised she's not a bigger name um, among, you know, the actresses of this sort of generation. Um, it seems like people mainly know her for Mildred Pierce, and that's about it. And I feel like that's too bad because she is such a, a force to be reckoned with in this film. And you would think watching this movie, this actress at this very young age doing this incredible performance opposite Joan Crawford and getting an Oscar nomination, she's going to go on in 10, 20 years, be the biggest star of her generation, and it didn't really happen, which is kind of crazy, considering how good she is here. Um, I think Vita is more complex than a lesser actress would have portrayed on screen. Um, you know, she has a lot of potential to be just sort of this one-note, bitchy uh, brat of a character, and she's so much more than that when you really start breaking it down and um, trying to see the world through her eyes. They're sort of twisted eyes, and I'm not necessarily defending her, but just sort of looking at it from like that writer-actor standpoint. Um, she's playing with a lot here, and I love the power dynamics uh, between um, Vita and Mildred and everyone else basically in the film. So um, how do you feel about your queen, v Vita Pierce? Um, okay, so I had watched... Mildred Pierce for the first time about a decade ago and I was like infatuated with it then and I remember Vita being this awful person and I was like Ugh. and as I've gotten older and I've had to do things to survive and I have put myself in positions <laughs> literally and figuratively to pay the rent whatever we do what we gotta do I, I I know what that hustle is like. So, like, watching this now, I was like, is she the villain? She's not the villain. Maybe she is the villain. Like, I had that, what was it, Scarlet Envy moment? Um, it, or is she the drama? That was it. And um, I I don't think she is. I, I think the movie, for movie's sake, sure, she's the villain. Call it that if you want it. But she just wants a better life for herself. I think she's highly misunderstood. And I think you do what you have to do to survive. I don't think that the hustle is um, um, a negative thing. Obviously, when she commits murder, that's a different story. That I'm not, you know, being like, yay, murder is good. That part is bad. Yes, I get that. There, she's a villain. But I don't think anything else is too bad, to be honest with you. I, you know, she, you know how many pregnancies I wish I could fake to get fucking 10 grand? Brandon, you know how many times I've tried to get pregnant just to do that? Like, come on. That isn't bad. She did what she had to do. I do think there are times where that belt should have come off and slapped her across the face because I am all about child beating. But like... I don't hate her for that. So I don't think she's the villain. So with that, Anna Blythe is fantastic here. Um, she, if Joan Loring is at a 10, Anne Blythe is at a 20. 
And that's not an over-the-top statement because you need that for this character. That's also why Evan Rachel Wood did not work for this character at all. Um, I want... I kind of would have loved to see a Mildred Pierce universe where we got spinoffs with like Ida and then Anne's character here with Vera. And I just kind of want more. I want a sequel. What happens next? You know, what else did Vera do for that time she was away before she was a can-can girl? Like how much, like how many times is she having Johns do coke off a, off of one of her titties? Because like, that's the life and I get it. So I'm for it. Um, you know, Anne Blythe hasn't worked since 1985 with Murder, She Wrote. And like I said, she's the second oldest surviving um, Oscar nominee. But um, on HBO recently, there was a Anne Blythe commentary on Mildred Pierce and Joan Crawford. So that was delightful to hear. Um, but yeah, I like her here. Also, side note, Andrea Leeds would have been amazing in this role. Oh, that'd be an interesting turn after stage door. Yep. That'd be cool. Um, I will say that Vita is the villain for me. She is. She does have a lot of complexity, uh, like I said, but she is an ungrateful daughter who puts her mother through hell and doesn't understand what her mom's going through and is very judgmental and manipulates people and tries to actively knock them down. So I will say she is a villain. But she does bring a lot of layers to this character that a less talented actress would not be able to do as well. So I will give her that. She has many facets, but they are nasty facets. Well, so. maybe her mother should have provided for her a little bit better. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. By the way, nasty <laughs> facets. Great drag name. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to stage. Nasty facets. That is really good. Whoever's Here's, listening can take it. If you're looking for your drag name, take it. Yes, that's a goodie. That's a goodie. And they would start off with uh, Janet Jackson's Nasty as their original song. Oh, of there. course. Of course. Um, do you have anything else on the Mildred Pierce ladies? Um, I think I'll save the rest for Joan. All right. Well, let's get to this year's winner, Anne Revere, as Mrs. Brown in National Velvet. This is her second of three nominations. No wins of any kind going into this. So going in, again, like I said earlier, precursors around this time don't mean shit, but Angela Lansbury is the only one to have anything, and she won. So Anne Revere has nothing. In National Velvet, again, Anne Revere plays Mrs. Brown, who is the mother to Liz Taylor and Angela Lansbury, amongst other children, and the uh, wife to Mr. Brown, literally that's what they're known as in the film. And she is the one who gives the hope and spirit and money for this, what is it called? Equestrian? Mm-hmm. Yeah, equestrian dream her daughter has. And a very, very hot Mickey Rooney. I literally remember texting you like, oh, 22-year-old Mickey Rooney could get it. And you just said, Okay. <laughs> so, what do you think of Anne Revere here? Um, I think Anne Revere is pretty good here. Um, I don't find this to be a particularly challenging role, but I think Anne Revere plays it really well. Uh, she's sort of this wise matron uh, character to um, – it's uh, Elizabeth Taylor, the daughter. And she says a lot. 
Anrevere does with just an upturned smirk or what she might do with her hands that I think communicates a lot without having lines or some big dramatic speech. So even though I don't find this to be, you know, a super uh, compelling character necessarily, I think Anne Revere brings a lot to it to sort of elevate it. Because I was not really a big fan of National Velvet. Like I remember I texted you because I had watched it and I was like, ugh, National Velvet, I don't know about that one. And you were like, oh, yikes. And uh, it sounds like you liked it a little more than me. Um, you're also more into Mickey Rooney than me, which just means you, you will not receive competition from me. He is all yours. So congratulations. You get 22-year-old Mickey Rooney. But, um, yeah, I just I wasn't a huge fan, but I, I dug what Anne Revere was doing, basically. So it's not uh, negative. I guess I just um, I wanted more from the film overall. I wanted everyone to do what Anne Revere was doing. Yeah, this movie sucks. <laughs> it's not a good movie. Um, I think you and I agree with that as a whole. Um, I, this is the only time I've ever been sexually attracted to Mickey Rooney. Um, and is in this movie, there's something about that man that's like, uh, makes me all nimbly bimbly. Um, Liz Taylor is adorable in this. And Angela Lansbury, like I said, I think is better here than she is in her nomination. Um, but yeah, as a, as a whole, this is not great. And review though, there's something with these first time watches that like struck me with her because she's the only one in the cast without an English accent. And yet somehow it works. Did you notice that? I did. It took me a while to notice that, um, which I guess must say something about Anne Revere and how well she was carrying the character. Considering yeah. she stood out in that way and it didn't even register until much later into the film. Yeah, I don't know why it works so well. You know, it's not like Catherine Hepburn when like, because we know infamously outside of, I think, one time Catherine Hepburn always just like kept her accent. Like Catherine Hepburn's accent works in um, Lion in Winter the same way Anne Revere's American accent works here. And it doesn't make sense to me. It's like, oh, OK, like it, it doesn't bother me. And I found that to be like endearing. I was like, that's okay. I'm into it. I could see this. Um, you know, there there were moments in this movie where I was like, how, where's this nomination coming in? And then it's the attic scene and everything else past that. So it's like, it, it, it wasn't just a moment. It was building up to the moment and then everything after the moment. And I was like, okay, yep. I, I, I you know, I'm into this. Um, so I, I do like this one. And what drove me insane, though, is the idea of calling your significant other Mr. Brown or Mrs. Brown. Like, what? <laughs> That's a very um, old people thing. Like, I know, like, people my grandparents' age say things like that. And it is kind of weird because, like, no one else does that. But I think it is just a very of-the-time sort of thing. I'm just, like, imagining you and Seth calling each other Mr. Stanwick, Mr. Stanwick. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, no. <laughs> I'd be like, no, no, we're not going to do this now. Um, but yeah, I just, the movie sucked. She's great. And yeah, overall, I think this category, minus one is really, really strong. Mm-hmm. So I'm into it. Yeah. 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 
Um, anything else on our supporting ladies before we move on? No, I think that about covers it. Take it away. All right. Well, your nominees for Best Actress in a Leading Role were Joan Crawford, Ingrid Bergman, Greer Garson, Jennifer Jones, and Jean Tierney. We'll start with our winner for the year. We have Joan Crawford winning for Mildred Pierce. This is her first of three nominations and the only time she would win. Going into this, uh, she wins the National Board of Review, and she uh, is nominated at the New York Film Critics, um, runner-up with Deborah Carr, which is an interesting thing. Deborah Carr wasn't even nominated at the Oscars this year, but she is quite good in Colonel Blimp, if you've never seen it. In Mildred Pierce, Joan Crawford, of course, plays Mildred Pierce, a dedicated um, mother who um, divorces her husband and opens a restaurant to support her spoiled daughter, Vita. So how do you feel about Joan Crawford and Mildred Pierce? So let's talk about the true villain of Mildred Pierce, shall we? Um, uh, Joan Crawford is a goddess. And, you know, we're not going to have another time to talk about her which is crazy to me but also i kind of get it because of the time period she was in like you know we talked about baby jane and i believe we both agreed that we she should have have had a ooh, let's try this english thing she should have had a nomination there um but you know if we're going out on a high this is why we're here right and joan crawford is so good in this role she she does everything from emotionally carry the film to physically carrying this film. This performance is so 1940s. Like this and Barbara Stamrick and Double Indemnity, I truly believe is what the 1940s were all about. Like outside of you know the war. But when I think now of this age in Hollywood, I don't think Betty Davis. I don't think Catherine Hepburn. I think three people, and that's Barbara Stanwyck, Greer Garson, and that is Joan Crawford, specifically in Mildred Pierce. This movie is kind of what the American dream that we were all sold to or sold on as kids. Like, this is what it is. This is a single woman who despite having an, you know, a tumultuous relationship with her child and her husband and the loss of a child builds sand into sandcastles. Like, this is it. Um, Joan Crawford is everything. I have one complaint in this movie, and it might not even about her performance here. It might not even be her fault. could be up to director Michael Curtis. But I always try to put myself in a position of having a child and then losing the child when I see that in the film. And I never, ever buy that that would be her reaction to losing her youngest kid. That's my only complaint. This is perfection, and I love this performance. You're up. Are you um, – I'm going to ask a question first. Are you saying that she's not – she doesn't appear devastated enough at the loss yes. of Kay? Yes, Okay. Like, there's there's never a moment where I believe that she's actually sad Kay's gone. Mm. I think I can see where you're coming from because the movie doesn't really dwell on that. And that could be a pacing thing. That could be, you know, the writing or the directing. But I feel as though Mildred is the type of person who is trying to um, gather her strength and stay strong in order to persevere. 
So perhaps that's also a reason, because uh, this is a very commanding role. Joan Crawford owns every frame of this film that she is in. Um, I feel as though this is a very authentic performance. I know you had said how you you generally don't buy a lot of the performances from this era, this acting style. Um, sometimes it rings a little false or phony. I never get that from Mildred Pierce. Uh, Joan Crawford seems to be tapping into something very genuine. Um, she seems to be channeling something palpably real, and I really dig it. Um, there's never a time where I kind of roll my eyes or, you know, scoff at whatever line she's delivering or the way she's carrying herself in the way that some other actors from this era are notorious for, you know, being stars as opposed to, you know, just acting. And Joan Crawford is acting the hell out of this performance. Um, she's not overacting it. She's playing it honestly. And it's fantastic. I understand why so many people rank this as one of the best winners of all time, um, just based on the performance alone, because she is without a doubt phenomenal and of course influential for performances and female characters, female protagonists to come uh, because it's truly a commanding role that you just can't stop watching whenever she's on screen. It's amazing yeah it, it is one like i said it is one of the few f performances from people who, and who i mentioned earlier um that do not feel phony of its time it actually feels like you could take the performance of joan crawford here in mildred pierce and place her into 2022 and it works yeah, I think it would translate relatively well, maybe with just some minor adjustments, because, you know, things have changed the way people um, execute their performances and stuff. But I think uh, in general, I think she's giving the most one of the more modern, quote unquote, performances by today's standards than a lot of her peers from that era. I would agree. I would agree. Yeah. And, you know, we had talked about Anne Blythe, and I think she um matches and Blythe very well yeah. uh, v Vita is giving it her all basically like anytime she is on screen the room is getting red for filth because that's who Vita is and Mildred stands up to her in a way that is believable for that a, a mother who loves her daughter so much would that she doesn't want to necessarily overpower or um she doesn't want to combat her daughter, but she also doesn't want to be stepped all over. And um, I think Joan Crawford finds that balance very well because the type of performance Anne Blythe is giving can be very difficult to match, um, you know, without it feeling weird or forced. But I think Joan Crawford pulls it off. Yeah, I think I think the the casting is so on point here. If it was, it, you know, we mentioned, of course, people who we'd love to see in this. But in the end, Anne Blythe Mil and I almost said Mildred Pierce Anne Blythe and Joan Crawford for this film are perfect. And it's also weird how much they look alike. That's how good it is. Yeah, the casting is very believable. Yeah, 
you want to talk about an Oscar category that have or that, you know, we should um, have had for a long time. It goes back to even something like Mildred Pierce in the 40s, like the casting should the casting is Oscar worthy. Mm-hmm. So. And of course, her relationship with Eve Arden is fantastic. Like, I totally buy that that dynamic, you know, uh, when Mildred is first hired in the restaurant to help when she knows absolutely nothing about restaurants and then she goes on to get her own restaurant she brings ida with her and the way the relationship stays the same but also changes due to you know their stations in life and the things that are happening is also very believable that these two people would stay at this certain friendship level even while everything around them is sort of shifting yeah yeah it's um yeah, there's something about this this performance to, you know, we could always throw a wave of pop culture in somewhere, but like when you were talking earlier about like how Anne and Joan just played together so well, it kind of feels like they based Untucked after their scenes here. You know what I mean? Like that, that's what I mean. Like every time Vita is on screen, it's like the reading challenge is happening. Yes, 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 yes. Uh so good it's so good fantastic film i honestly wasn't sure if you were going to come on to this episode and be like actually mildred pierce is trash and here's why and i was like mentally preparing myself for that take no we're not talking about olivia de Havilland and the heiress we're not talking about trash we're talking about mildred pierce right we're, we're not talking about that masterpiece we're talking about this masterpiece got it <laughs> so uh Next, we have Ingrid Bergman, nominated for The Bells of St. Mary's. This is her third of seven nominations. Uh, Going into this, she is pretty popular as she wins the Golden Globe, and she is the winner at New York Film Critics. In Bells of St. Mary's, Ingrid Bergman plays Sister Benedict, the sister's superior and educator at an inner-city Catholic school who's trying to save the school from ruin, alongside Bing Crosby's father, O'Malley, reprising his role from Going My Way, the previous year's Best Picture winner. So how do you feel about Ingrid Bergman in The Bells of St. Mary's? When I tell you I started watching For Whom the Bell Tolls. <laughs> no. <laughs> wrong, was, wrong bells. I was like, wait a minute. Something's wrong here. I'm like, where's Bing? Um... <laughs> I could not, Brandon. Brandon, we went we over this in the previous episode. What's up? We went over this at the end of the last episode, where you said this was the sequel to "For Whom the Bell Tolls," and I was like, "No, it's going my way." No. <laughs> okay, but do you expect anything less from this mess? No. Exactly. So <laughs> let me be. Um, yeah. So I started watching "For Whom the Bell Tolls." Um, so I. Yeah, no. Okay, so this movie I waited to watch last because it was the movie that I went to go watch first to get out of the way when I started watching For Who the Bell Tolls. So I waited until I was done with everything else. So I kind of went into it like, great, like I'm going to hate it. And I cannot believe how much I ended up really liking this this movie. First of all, can we talk about how Ingrid Bergman ran a child fight club in this movie? Yes. (laughs) 
I saw that and I literally did a spit take because I was like, what the fuck is happening here? <sighs> okay. First of all, pop off queen. Second of all, this bitch is literally teaching this little kid how to fight and move his feet and like jab, jab. And then is like jab, jabbing out of the window when he's getting into this playground fight. And I'm like, yes, this is my shit. I also did not find Bing Crosby to be annoying. Like I thought I would have. He's also really hot in this movie. I'm about it. I'm about hot men in, the, in this in this year, apparently. And, um, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed this movie. So I'm like, is going my way really that bad? Everyone says it is. So I'm like, great. But, um, but no, I, you know, I really enjoyed her here. This was, this was the first time out of all of the nominations that we've talked about since Autumn Sonata that I really have enjoyed one of her nominations. You know, um, I see why she's nominated. I see why she was the quote unquote front runner. Um, like it makes sense to me, you know, there is not a moment where she isn't on screen where like you're not just completely transfixed on her. Um, and, you know, she's 30 years old playing a mother superior here, which I was like, all right, go off. And, you know, good for her. My biggest gripe, I think, about this movie, though, is at the very end where he's like, by the way, you have tuberculosis. And she's like, oh, that makes me so happy. Thank you. Bye. I'm like, <laughs> What? <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> no. Um, but you know, what from every scene where she's like talking about like, do we really fail every student? And she she does the right thing that she's supposed to do as a teacher and is like, nah, bet you failed. But like what really broke my heart in her acting here was when she's told she's being transferred, like her whole life's work shatters into a million pieces and you see that and it's really good. And I liked it. What about you? Oh, side note, seriously. Also again, the fight club, LOL, your turn. So I was dreading watching this movie because I did not care for going my way whatsoever. The bells of St. Mary's is better. It is 100% better than Going My Way. And I think it's because of Ingrid Bergman. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Bing Crosby. Um, mentioned that we talked about The Country Girl. But Bing Crosby is mostly tolerable here. Um, I also like him better in this than I did in Going My Way, which was his Oscar-winning performance. And I think it's because this movie is willing to let him and Ingrid Bergman be on relatively equal grounds. At least she is more prominent than I thought she would be. Going into this, I honestly, not knowing very much, thought that she would be, like, supporting plus. I thought it would be, like, the Bing Crosby show and Ingrid Bergman's kind of over there. I was so happy that it was not that. She very much has a presence in this movie, and she is funny. Is she a little young to be playing a mother superior? Maybe. I don't know Catholic culture, so I'm going to ignore it. I think she's funny in this, and when she was running that children's fight club, I was fucking living. Like, I did not expect her to be teaching children how to beat the shit out of each other, but girl, <laughs> I liked it. Like, I was I was fucking Michelle Visage when Roxy Andrews took the wig off, only to reveal another wig. I was like, yes! <laughs> I, I wanted more. Yes. Um, the tuberculosis thing is weird. Um, it's not cool that in like the last act of the movie, she's diagnosed with tuberculosis, 
but the doctor doesn't tell her. He tells Bing Crosby, and he's like, don't tell her, though. She'll be sad about it. And I'm like, you cannot not tell someone that they had tuberculosis because it'll make them bummed. That's not what you do as a doctor. But they totally do that here. And I was like, this does some bullshit. And long before HIPAA. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I was not expecting to like this movie about nuns in the 40s. I was like, oh, cool. Nuns in the 40s. That's going to be boring as fuck. I liked this more than I expected. And a lot of it has to do with Ingrid Bergman. And I really like how diverse her Oscar nominations are. Um, I haven't been the biggest fan of all of her nominations, but if anything else, they're all very different from each other. And I think that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I'm also imagining you as Michelle Massage in that moment. <laughs> uh, can we get that movie, please? Can we get the Child Fight Club movie? I think we should make it happen. I think we should. I'm here for it. You know who I would love to, I would love to run a child fight club is Isabel Huppert. <laughs> but she literally, I'm just imagining the no noise. Like <laughs> Isabel Huppert and Michelle Yeoh should run rival fight clubs that fight each other. Oh fuck! Who do you who do you put your money on? Shit. See, I feel like Michelle Yeoh's Child Fight Club would be more, like, technically well-crafted. Like, they would have the moves down and be very uh, polished. But Isabel Huppert's would be, like, unhinged and unpredictable. Mm-hmm. And I want to see it. Yeah. Me too. Let's make it happen. Okay. <laughs> I'm for it. Did you have anything else on Ingrid Bergman? No, I don't know if we could top that. Like, that's the thing. That conversation right there. <laughs> so next we have Greer Garson, nominated for The Valley of Decision. This is her sixth of seven nominations, and it ends her domination at the Oscars here in the 40s until she comes back in, what, 1960, uh, playing um, Eleanor Roosevelt. But in The Valley of Decision... Greer Garson plays Mary Rafferty, an Irish maid who falls for the son of her wealthy boss to the disapproval of her working class father. So how do you feel about Greer Garson in the Valley of Decision? Can I start off with why do people hate Greer Garson? I don't get it. Do you know? I mean, I can't speak for everyone else, but I'm also not a huge fan of Greer Garson. I just find her most of the time kind of bland and put on like the way you feel about people in general in this era Greer Garson for that for me is the the example of that of that sort of performance style that is has gone by the wayside okay but most of the time I don't care for her not every time but a lot of the time I don't I thought you were going to end that sentence with with the way you feel about most people which also would have (laughs) understood Also, I get it. Um, so, you know, I, I gave her the win for Mrs. Parkington. She, you know, I think highly deserved to win there. And I, she was my runner-up for Sunrise at Campobello, which people seem to hate that performance, which I don't know why. She's really good there. Um, this, I have, like, I love Greer Garson. Like, I... I have fallen in love with Greer Garson as I'm watching these movies from the 40s. And 
and and I don't know what it is that she what spell she has on me. Now, I have not seen Madame Curie, Mrs. Miniver, Blossom in the Dust, or Goodbye, Mr. Chips yet. So I'm working my way through this. This is my third of her X amount of nominations. Um, so I can't speak on those yet. But you know, in the uh the value decision is not a good movie. It's it's not. It's it's quite bland. It's it's not super interesting in my opinion um we got a hot ass gregory peck there so i'm here for that um and of course we have my uh winner from my fair lady gladys cooper here and a very young jessica tandy um but yeah i i don't love the movie with that said i like what greer is doing here i think it's just enough for what this character offers but i don't know if i have any more than that um i I wouldn't say she's bad because I don't think she's bad here. I just think she was working with the material she had and it was enough without overdoing it. Um, you know, her, I think her best acting comes near the end of the movie when um, uh, Gregory Peck's mother, uh, who is played by Gladys Cooper, uh, uh, Clarissa, I believe her name. Yeah. Clarissa Scott, um, where she, gifts her a chunk of the 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 uh the steel mills ownership and you know what she takes on there i think is really good work um but yeah i think this movie just brings her down that not even greer garson can save it but yeah i think greer garson for me right now is kind of where you're at with barbara stanwick which is i i don't know maybe maybe as i get through her filmography more like i might get on that train where everyone else is at. But right now she's kind of my favorite of this era. So what say you? Uh, for me, this is uh, right in the middle when it comes to Greer Garson's nominations. I've now seen all of her nominations and I would, I would put this like smack in the middle. Um, I think she is, she's good here, but I don't love it. Um, I don't care for this film, which is too bad because I feel like this film has a lot of potential. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on here when it comes to, you know, um, the labor unions and the fight for workers' rights and um, the upper class and their sort of domination over uh, the poor working class people. And it's sort of got that uh, that forbidden love storyline kind of thing going on with Gregory Peck being of the rich family and Greg Arson being of the working class family who crossed paths due to her um, employment. So it's got a lot of potential for a very rich story full of conflict. I just found myself so bored with this movie. I just was seldom very interested in what was going on. I thought Greer was fine, but she wasn't really elevating or saving the material in any way. It just seemed like a very typical Greer Garson performance for me, and um, it was fine. I was much more interested in what Jessica Tandy was doing, for example. I thought Jessica Tandy was quite good here, and I thought Gregory Peck was very attractive. So those are the two things that kept my mind on the – or kept my eyes on the television screen because, um, unfortunately, Greer's just not quite doing it for me here. I think she's much better in Mrs. Miniver. I think Mrs. Miniver is a more – complex role and a better film i think she's better in madame curie and i'd say she's even better in blossoms in the dust and uh, then there's valley of decision so um not a huge fan of greer garson so maybe that's weighing on me a little bit but um this one didn't really change my mind at all yeah jessica tandy's performance feels like it 
would be a supporting actress nomination. I think maybe she had a little bit more in the beginning. She would have, but do you, do you feel that? Yeah, I had that thought too. I was like, while I was watching this, of course, for Greer Garson, I kept thinking, how in the hell is Jessica Tandy not nominated? Cause she's, in my opinion, better. Like I'm more interested in what Jessica Tandy's doing. The only thing I can think of is it's not really, um, it's not a respectable role. It's a, you're not really supposed to like her, but it's not in the same sort of villainous way that you love to hate Vita or Bessie. You just kind of are supposed to dislike her character with no real redemption or anything of that nature about her. I don't know how to explain it, but that's the only thing I can think of. Maybe the, the voters were holding the character against her, you know? Wait, we hate Vita and Bessie? I do not. I enjoy them. <laughs> what I mean is they are sort of this villainous, I know. I know what you awful mean. force. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I could see it. But, you know, I feel like had she been nominated with Vita and Bessie, this would have been a hell of a Mean Girls lineup. Oh, that would be rad as hell. Oh, right. right. And then you have Anne, Anne Revere there just being the noble mother. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then she wins. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I'm still thinking of uh, Ingrid Bergman running a child. <laughs> on an inner city Catholic school campus. Oh, God. As Love someone it. who was raised Catholic, I'm just like, it, it that brought me so much joy. <laughs> uh, anyway, sorry. Anything else on your Queen Greer Garson? No, I'm looking forward to her other nominations, though. I actually um, I have Blossoms in the Dust coming up next, so that'll be probably by early next week. Yeah, I like her better in that one. I'm not a huge fan of that film, but I think she's she's given more to do in that yeah. movie. Someone mentioned that her Goodbye Mr. Chips one is really bad. It's my least favorite. Um, only, I mean, it's a couple things. It is blatant category fraud, and it's not really interesting in any way. She's kind of just the love interest, and there's not really much depth to her character. So she's not really given much to work with in terms of p- script pages or character development like it's just nothing (laughs) gotcha yeah so um next we have jennifer jones nominated for love letters this is her third of five nominations um going into this she doesn't really get anything at all just sort of the oscar nomination and uh in this movie she plays victoria moreland slash singleton um, an amnesiac woman who may have murdered her husband and then falls in love with the man who wrote the love letters that she thought were from her husband. I don't remember, and neither does she, to be honest. So how do you feel about Jennifer Jones? So first of all, hello, Gladys Cooper again. Um, and can we talk about this being the original source material to a comedic remake called 50 First Dates. I thought the same thing. Oh my God, Brandon. <laughs> Brandon! I was like, I liked it better when Drew Barrymore did it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, look at us. Look at us. Look at us. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Not me. Um, I could not believe it. I'm like, no, they did not. Because, you know, Adam Sandler did that with Cactus Flower, with Just Go With It. Oh, I've never saw Just Go With It. It's a literal remake of Cactus Flower. Mm. Yes. 
So the fact that he did that here with love letters, now whether it is intentional or not, this is one of those things that if it's not intentional, I would still be like, mm, I want to take this to court because I want to have a jury decide. Um, yeah, I could. Oh, God. OK, so talk about someone who I really wasn't sure at first why the hell they were in lead. Did you also get that? Um, category placement didn't really cross my mind because not very much was crossing my mind while watching this movie. <laughs> Okay, so what I mean by that is that I knew because of Screen Time Central, shout out, um, that she had 51 minutes of screen time. So by the time the 40-minute mark came around, she only had that, like, one scene where he meets her in the apartment. Oh, this, yeah, she comes in pretty late. Yeah, I'm like, wait a minute, how did she have an almost hour? Like, where, what, what the fuck? Um, this movie's a mess. <laughs> this movie has, like, seven different plots going on at the same time. Like, I don't even know how the love letters fit in to like the beginning of the movie to where it ends up in the, like, I don't, maybe I missed something. Maybe I came out of the comatose at the first half hour, bro. I don't know. But like, I don't know. All I know is that Gladys Cooper killed a hoe and Jennifer Jones is doing something here, but I don't know what it is. Um, is. I'm just like picturing Adam Sandler watching love letters and thinking, <laughs> you know what I could do? Right. Set it in Hawaii and cast Drew Barrymore. <laughs> Seriously. But like, you know, we talked about her with Sent You In A Way. I, 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 I have seen a very long time ago, The Song of Bernadette, and I, you know, liked it. I, I haven't seen her other nominations. So these are like, you know, smack dab in the middle. But it's like, did. OK, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, sure. Uh, she's here. Um I don't know. I don't know. I don't dislike it, but I don't love it. Mm -hmm. I I would say that I dislike it only because it's not really doing anything at all for me. Um, I have not seen The Song of Bernadette. I have been told from several people that she is actually quite good in The Song of Bernadette, and I'll take their word for it. But from what I've seen of Jennifer Jones, she just does nothing for me. Um, since you went away, I guess I liked her a little bit more because I guess she had a little more to do here. Love Letters, I feel like it's – she's like a blank slate the entire time. And I can understand why that would be a good starting place for the beginning of her character considering she you know, has amnesia and stuff. But I feel like it's consistently nothing going on with her. I feel like it gets a little more interesting in the last – 20 minutes while like all the pieces are falling into place and there's the flashbacks and we kind of see how things happened. She actually has some, some material to work with, but even then I'm so checked out by that point that it's not really doing a whole hell of a lot for me. Um, so unfortunately, Jennifer Jones, you're one other person who just frankly does not do much for me, but I'm going to decide to put the blame on Ayn Rand who wrote the screenplay, who let Ayn Rand wrote a, write a screenplay, I have no idea, but um, <laughs> it's their fault. And and I'm sorry, Jennifer, that you have this, have this film on your reputation for the rest of history because of what Ayn Rand did. So yeah, not, not a fan of love letters. Don't see myself uh, rewatching this anytime soon. Yeah, um, if you're going to watch this, there's a really good version of it that came out in 2004 with Drew Barrymore in this role. 
Much better. I don't know if I'd say really good, but it's better. Well, compared to Love Letters, it's really good. I'd I'd be more inclined to endure 50 First Dates than I would Love Letters. I'll give you that. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know. Like I said, Song of Bernadette, she's really good from what I remember. I know her next one, I think it's called like The Last Duel or something or something Duel, Duel in the Sun, Paradise Duel, Duel in the Sun, that's it. And she's like in brown face for that one. And then she had like Love is a Many Splendor Thing. Yep, Love is a Many Splendor Thing. So it's like, you know, this is smack dab in the middle. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that. Yeah, poor Joan. Maybe maybe when I see Song of Bernadette, I'll I'll have something positive to say. But so far, I don't have much. Yeah. So next we cool. have our final leading lady. We have Jean Tierney, uh, nominated here for Leave Her to Heaven. This is her first and only nomination, and she doesn't really have much going into Oscar night. In Leave Her to Heaven, Jean Tierney plays Ellen, a young socialite who marries a novelist, becomes obsessed with him, and basically kills anyone who tries to come between them, no matter who they are. So how do you feel about Jean Tierney and Leave Her to Heaven? Before Kathleen Turner in Body Heat, before Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct, before Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction, there was Jean Tierney in Leave Her to Heaven, and is she the villain here? No, I'm kidding. Um, this movie, this movie left a bad taste in my mouth. And this performance left a bad taste in my mouth because it felt very much like, okay, like I get the time period and like why they had to censor what they censored and how they kind of dialed it back. And then it, and then I kept thinking about it and it kept thinking about it more. And then I remembered the scene where she drowns the kid and the look on her face. And it reminded me of Barbara Stanwyck and double indemnity when her husband is getting strangled in the back of the car. And that, sent shivers up my spine and then it made me think of the performance as a whole and go back to it and realize how fucking brilliant she is here um and i'm so glad i took that time to let it soak in because my appreciation of this performance really grew the more i thought of this movie um and i think it's fantastic what she's doing here this is so conniving and so ridiculous and the fact that we just talked about her in that little hamburger stand movie, what was that movie? Um, the Mating Season. The Mating Season, which she's so good in, and it's so funny. It's like a complete 180 of personalities. Oh, yeah, with the fake Cleveland airport that never looked like that. Um, it, it's just fascinating what she's doing here. I also want to know what kind of – is that supposed to be a swimming pool they're in, or is that just a lake with a dock? Like, what is that? I think it's a lake. Okay, because I'm like, why is that pool so brown? Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is a fascinating performance and very hot Vincent Price. My God, not going to lie that shit, Mimma Pussy Throb, just throwing that out there, but it is fucking scary and I'm here for it. 
what what about you so i watched this for the first time for this episode and i was shocked that i had never seen it before i was so into this fucking movie i was on the goddamn edge during that scene when the when the brother is drowning and she's just sitting in the boat i was losing my fucking mind and it's so it's directed so well because it is so minimalist in a sense i don't even remember if there's any score like i i honestly think it might have just been silent or if there was a score it was very well done because it didn't draw attention to itself and you know ruin the moment for me but there is something so calculated about this performance and i love it and just when i thought she couldn't get any more devious and deranged she outdid herself which is a feat like when she threw herself down the stairs oh. like I, I saw okay so i in my mind i i had a feeling that's where this story should go like i could i could see that's where the character's mind is going but they're not going to do that in 1945 they're not going to do that they're going to do something else and then she fucking did it and i was like bitch and i was living um yeah i think this is a great performance and kind of like ann blythe i'm surprised jean tierney didn't become like the biggest thing in the world like i know she had laura which i think was the year before this and she has a couple other things like you know she turns up in the mating season gives a very solid performance in that but she's um she's not really considered one of like the the a-list stars from this era in quite the same way that you know your joan crawford's and your betty davis's are and i think that's crazy because i feel like jean tierney seems to be someone with a lot of potential i've only seen a few movies that she's in but they're all very different and she gives pretty strong performances in them all and um I can't imagine how people back then saw this performance and didn't think we need to put her in every movie because she's amazing. And I could not get over how I had never seen this movie that is like the perfect cross between noir and Douglas Sirk Technicolor melodrama. It was like insane. I was losing my mind. So yeah, I quite liked it. Yeah, I'm glad that this movie stuck with me the way it did. Because like I said, when it first ended, I was like, eh. And then I just kept thinking about it. Because I I really was into that scene where, you know, the kid drowns. I know that sounds bad, but whatever. But That was a great scene. Yeah, and then, then when she kills the baby, again, there, what is wrong with me? But no, I, like, you know what I mean if you've seen the movie. And then I'm just, like, thinking of this performance more and more and more. And when she's, di- when she's dead, she's, he's like, you won't do that. And she's like, watch me, bitch. <laughs> And like, I was like, oh my God, I, I, I genuinely blows my mind that this isn't talked about more. Like, so imagine Anne Blythe in this role, like imagine them switching roles. Like they, they would fit that role, but they're perfect for the roles that they're in. So I wasn't sure about mentioning the ending, but you jumped, you, you beat me to it. So if anyone hasn't seen the ending to this movie, I guess pause or whatever. But so she leaves this movie when there's like 20 minutes left, I want to say. Yeah. And her presence presence. is completely felt for every single minute that she's not there. Because even though she's not technically physically in all this, um, the scenes that come after, 
she is like the subject of conversation and her character's influence is present. Like everything that happens in the last 20 minutes is because of everything she did before. And even though she's not there giving a performance, everything she did up to that created a sort of invisible performance in the last 20 minutes. So that makes any sense. Yeah. It's kind of wild. Yeah. It's, it is truly, truly insane how good she is here. Yeah. I was, I was shocked that I'd never seen this before. I was like, how, how has this never crossed my radar? Yeah. I agree. I, um, Yeah, I just, I don't have anything bad to say about it. Yeah, me neither. This is a movie that I definitely see myself revisiting. Yes, absolutely. Same. I might have to get the Criterion. And I love that they went on the cover of the of the close-up of her with the sunglasses on the boat watching her brother-in-law die. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the cover image on the Criterion. And of course, I knew that was the image because I had seen it before. I didn't know the context of the scene. So I'm of the picture. So I'm watching the movie and I get to that scene and I understand what she is looking at in mm-hmm. that close up and just how cold she is and I was like, "Oh, Criterion, you bitches. You knew what you were doing." <laughs> I loved it. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. It's a goodie. Yes. Um, yeah. We 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 made it. We did. That was our final nominee. We did. Um, should we just do it then? Our final time? Our final uh, ranking? Yeah. You ready for okay, it? Okay, sure. All right. So as a reminder, your nominees were Anne Blythe and Eve Arden and Mildred Pierce, Angela Lansbury in the picture of Dorian Gray, Anne Revere in National Velvet, and Joan Loring in The Corn is Green. Number five for me here is a clear-cut fifth place, and that's Angela Lansbury. Um, <laughs> this is just a silly nomination, and compared to literally everyone else in this nominee or in this nomination group, it is uh, the clear standout of the weakest. So Angela Lansbury is in fifth. So... Um... This might be a little bit of a shocker. I'm go- I've been going back and forth between my four and my five, but I think I'm also going to put Angela Lansbury at number five, and that will make sense here in a couple minutes. I quite like her in the picture of Dorian Gray. I, I definitely am more of a champion of her in this film than you are, but this is a this is a surprisingly good lineup for me. I, I was not expecting it to be as strong as it was going in, and there's something about the other four that um, just spark my interest just a little bit more, even though I do quite like Angela Lansbury. Um, But she has number five here for me. So I want to note, going forward, this is a moment like Best Actress 1950 or Best Actress 2010 for, for me, where any one of these performances can win. There is not a bad apple in this bunch. And it, this was one of the hardest lineups for me to rank because I just love them all so equally that if we had I'm going to pull a U card here if we had done this on any other day each one of these would have won for me so take 
this ranking with a shot of penicillin for a ranking of 4321. Okay. 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 Bum, bum, bum. Number four is Anne Blythe in Mildred Pierce. She is so good. I have to just put her somewhere. And I. Yeah, four, because I have to. So there she is. Anne Revere is going to be my number four. Um, She elevated this role more than I expected her to. Um, I went into National Velvet basically expecting to not like any aspect of it, Anne Revere included. I didn't care for the film, so I was right about that part. But Anne Revere did do a lot of really intricate work to make this performance more intriguing than I expected it to be. She had a, there's a, a professional polish that she adds to this that I think really makes it um, more dimensional than another actress might have. So um, Anne Revere is my number four. Number three is Joan Loring. Um, my, my two queens who I identify with the most in this lineup are a pair and I'm going to keep them as a pair. Um, again, I don't think she's better than Anne. Just like, I don't think Anne is better than Joan. I just have to rank them in my heart. This is a four way tie. So just, it should tell you everything about four to one. So there it is. Joan Loring is also my number three. Um, is it fair to say that this is a one note performance? Maybe, but I really liked this note. Um, because I was not really feeling the film, but anytime she brought her attitude on screen, I was, I was back. Like I was in it again. And, um, that says something. I don't think it's the most, uh, intricate performance necessarily, but she is the only reason to watch this film in my opinion. So there you go. She's my number three. So my number two is Eve Arden, which means I am pulling a very rare thing for me here is where I agree with the Academy and the winner is Anne Revere. Eve Arden is fantastic in Mildred Pierce, and I love her so much. The reason why Anne Revere, and this is the only reason why she is at number one, is National Velvet is a shit movie. It's not good. But if you watch it, watch it for her. I mentioned earlier, she doesn't use an English accent here, and it works too well. And it is a truest testament for working in this film that if it didn't work, it would be a sore thumb. And the fact that it works the way it is with her speaking and her dialect and the wholesomeness of her warm motherly presence, it has stuck with me since I texted you that night that Mickey Rooney could tap it. So that's how long and revere I've been thinking of this performance. And it's the only one of the five that I have thought of this long afterwards. So I was like, it has to mean something. So again, this is a four way tie in my heart, but I agree that the Academy made the right decision. My number two is Eve Arden for Mildred Pierce. I really like this no-nonsense broad. Um, I love that this is a supporting, supporting role, the type of 
supporting role we don't see nominated very often these days. So I like that because uh, every scene that she's in, she is a beacon of light and she's amazing. Um, but she keeps it supporting. Uh, it sounds silly, but I like it. Uh, Anne Blythe, though, is my winner. Um, she brings such drama to this film that is already so full of drama. And um, I, I love it. Um, I think Anne Blythe gives a fantastic performance. It's crazy that she is not a much more well-known name from this era, because uh, I think her performance in Mildred Pierce is somewhat unmatched. She brings much more depth and complexity to Vita than other actresses her age from this era may have. And I quite like it. So Anne is my winner. Any comments before we move on to leads? Would you have thought I actually agreed with the Academy? No, I never would have thought Anne Revere would be your cup of tea. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's just, she works too well for me here. She works much better than I anticipated, so I, I definitely agree in that regard. Yes. Yep. And your leading ladies, as a reminder, were Joan Crawford and Mildred Pierce, uh, Ingrid Bergman in The Bells of St. Mary's, Greer Garson in Valley of Decision, Jennifer Jones in Love Letters, and Jean Tierney in Leave Her to Heaven. And my fifth place is Jennifer Jones for Love Letters. I do not know what she's doing here. I'm going to I'm going to second that sentiment. I <laughs> good for her that she got another nomination in her career, but no, this is fifth place work. Yes. Greer Garson is my number 4 here. Um I don't necessarily dislike Greer Garson's performance in Valley of Decision. I just don't find it very intriguing. Um it's not my cup of tea and um I think the other 3 are much higher on another level than um Greer in Valley of Decision so that's why she's my number four Brandon I agree with you Greer Garson at number four as much as I love Greer Garson this is just this is okay work this is this is work that sufficed for the film she was in but even with what she had been working with I don't know if she had upped her game in this lineup had she would have been able to get higher so She's definitely better than Jones, but I got to put her at four. So this is where it gets a little trickier because I like these remaining three quite a bit. Um, but I think I'm going to put Ingrid Bergman at number three for the Bells of St. Mary's. Um, like Anne Revere, this is one that I went into not really expecting to like. I thought I would dislike the movie. I thought I would dislike the performance. And I was surprised. The movie's better than I thought it would be. It's better than its predecessor. And Ingrid Bergman is one of the main reasons for it. She brings a lot of life and a lot of laughter to this movie that could have been dull as hell. But it is not, because Ingrid brought it. So um, thank you, Ingrid, for not making that movie a miserable time. So that's why she's my number three. Yeah, ranking these these final three, again, it's like, it's no that in my heart, it's a three-way tie. Um, but you have to put them somewhere here, so I had to do this. Um, and this was just pulling teeth. Um, but number three, I'm going to put Joan Crawford for Mildred Pierce. Um, there is not a bad note in this performance. And this 
performance is iconic for all the right reasons, and she is a wonderful, wonderful real-life winner. Um, but for me, she doesn't stick in my mind as long as the other two, and she's way better than the other two, so know that this is a third place that's so close to first that it's I could taste it. So um, Joan Crawford is a very very dear to me number number three gene tierney is my runner up here i found myself infatuated with this film and with this performance playing someone so cold and calculated and somewhat detached can be pretty difficult um to find a way to be true to that type of character while still maintaining some form of connection with your audience so that they are engaged with you as a performer. I think Jean Tierney nails that. I think Ellen is a devious character and one I wanted, I could not wait until the next scene to see what she did, whether she was finding some way to manipulate someone or whether she was actively or passively trying to kill them or lead them to their death. Um, I was so into it. And I love that this movie came out in 1945. Like I was not expecting this film uh, to be this engrossing um, here in this year. But Gene Tierney, fabulous. I'm gonna revisit this film probably several times. Um, Joan Crawford though, and Mildred Pierce, this is correct. I feel like this was the right role at the right time. She nailed it. She is perfection. This this is correct. Um, I don't know another way to put it that I haven't already stated, but um, I get it. I get why people love this performance. I get why people rank it so high. And if there was another Oscar for um, an on-screen duo, I feel like I would have given it to Joan and Anne together again, because um, that's how good they are on screen. Um, fabulous work. So yes, I agree with the Academy in this category. So my runner up is Jean Tierney, which means Ingrid Bergman is my winner. Um, there, <laughs> When I had finished Leave Her to Heaven, there is no way in hell I would have ever thought that she would be as so close to the first place let alone ahead of Joan Crawford but unlike Joan here this stuck with me a little bit longer whether it is for the right or wrong reasons I'm not sure but I never even in my initial first watch of Mildred Pierce had that that like that connection to what Joan was doing. Again, she's perfection. That's a, it's a great fucking win. I'm not mad at it. But Gene Tierney stuck with me. And that scene, you know, a lot of people have always said, and I mentioned it earlier, that scene with Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity is iconic. And the fact that Gene Tierney does it here as well, and it's not as talked about, and it's in my opinion, even more haunting than what Stanwyck does in Indemnity is absurd to me. 
that nobody talks of this one. So she is my second. Ingrid Bergman, hashtag Child Fight Club, gives me everything. I cannot believe on our final episode that I finally have rewarded Ingrid Bergman. It's insane. It's insane. I never thought this day would come because I have not liked any of her nominations since Autumn Sonata. And she was she just was beaten out that year by Jill Clayburgh for me. So I was so surprised that this movie that I was dreading watching, how much I ended up liking it and how Ingrid Bergman stole my heart. She's dramatic. She's heartbreaking. She's hilarious. And it's just mind blowing to me that she didn't win despite me agreeing with Joan Crawford's win again, but like her being the front runner quote unquote, and then losing is kind of weird to me, but yeah, I would say Ingrid Bergman here. So you got one right for me and I got one right for you. Yes. And I need to add a little correction. When I was going through Greer Garson's nominations and ranking them, I completely forgot about Mrs. Parkington, mm-hmm. which I would probably rank as number two or three. Yeah. Above Valley Decision and above Blossoms. Yes. She's wonderful in that movie. I completely forgot about it, and I'm ashamed because she is very good in that movie. She's so good. She's so good. Yes. And just as a reminder for the final time, um, I agree with the Academy and Revere should have won. And I disagree with the Academy, but I agree with the Academy, but Ingrid Bergman should have won. Yes. And I agree with the Academy in that Joan Crawford rightfully won, but I disagree with the Academy in thinking that Anne Blythe should have won. And that is that. Holy shit. We did it. Yes. Yes. We completed our series. We did. And it has been a wild ride and it has been a long ride. It's been long, but if you think about it in the term of series, we knocked out seven, eight seasons in three years. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot. Yeah, we've. We've watched a lot of movies in the last three years. Moved cross-country twice in three years. Yep. And it's it's been insane. It's like thinking back to it all, like the last time we were in studio together was 1989. And then the last time that we'd, we've done an in-person recording was 2020. Yeah, it's it's yeah, because that was the one that Ryan was like smacking the table and we didn't notice until midway through. Yeah, until I was editing and I was like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, this has been so much fun and annoying at times. You know, we both agree. And it was like, you know, from moment one, it you know, because we have had some great interactions with people on Twitter and from moment one, we always said, like, we want to go out when we feel like it's becoming a chore. And it did. It became, it felt like a chore after a while. And we had to take breaks because we were losing the fun of it. And it, as a whole, this experience has been a lot of fun. And I'm glad that you went on this crazy journey with me. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you were able to come to Dallas last spring and we talked about this. Because I think we were both at a similar place where we we genuinely enjoy doing this show, watching these movies and interacting with people online. But we had started developing 
other um, interests and we were kind of figuring out other things that we enjoyed doing and it became difficult to balance all of that with the commitment of the show because so many episodes require so many hours of homework and then recording time and editing and et cetera. And so I think, yeah, we both kind of came to the same conclusion that we're going to pick a handful of years and that's going to be it. And we're going to, we're going to give it our all and we're going to go out on our terms. And, um, we followed through on that. I think we did. And I'm very proud and very, um, very, very proud of our hard work. And, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. Now I got to ask you, Throughout this whole thing, because I I know my answer to this for you, is there a winner that completely shocked you that you never expected? And I'll go first so you can maybe think of it. The one that will always stick with me the most, it was completely left field that left me dead in a ditch, was Marina de Tavira for Roma. Which also was one of the funniest and most fun episodes because we had our beloved great-grandmother, Eric Anderson, on that episode. And it was one of the best experiences recording with you that I've ever had. And it is the one winner you had that completely left me dead in the ditch. That episode was truly one of the best times I've ever had podcasting. Like, it was one of our longest episodes, but every second of it was a delight because Eric was a fantastic guest and we were just killing each other left and right with all of our takes about a year that we had withheld our opinions on for at least a year because we had started recording when that Oscar season was happening and we actively chose to not talk about it so that we could save it for when we eventually got to that year in the chronology of the episodes. And so a lot of those takes we were hearing for the first time, but we had been experiencing them internally for over a year and we finally let them out during that episode. So that was a pretty good time. Yeah. Is there a win that you can think of that took you by surprise? I'm still kind of trying to think of one because I feel as though early on in our recording history, I just became accustomed to this idea that you would pick something completely asinine. And so I would go into every episode like something ridiculous is going to happen and I'm just going to nod because I've come to accept this. (laughs) So now I'm trying to think, was I ever truly shocked by something? And I'm, I'm like scrolling through the the history of the categories and I'm trying to like pinpoint one and I can't. <laughs> I mean, I we 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 had a rule throughout this whole thing, too, is that you could have ties, but you could only have two ties a decade, which you never used once and i to this day i still can't fathom how you didn't at least use one because i definitely took advantage of that in the 70s and in the 80s um but yeah it was you never used that once um wouldn't it have been wild if i pulled it out here for and blythe and eve arden just out of nowhere 
I low key was waiting for it. I was like, I thought that before we had started recording, like he's never used it. What if he uses it here for something? So I, I was expecting it, but I didn't know who. And I would have also dead in a ditch had you done that for the the gaggery of yes. it all. Yes. Um. There there was a question that we were always asked, but we've already answered. But we'll just recap it really quick. Have we ever regretted a win? And I and I've said once, and that was. Brenda Blethyn, me giving her a second win in 1998 for Little Voice when it, I I knew it should have gone to Kathy Bates for Primary Colors. And I said that the moment we stopped recording, I was like, damn it. Um, but that's the only one I would change on this show. I don't know if regret is the right word because I can sort of pinpoint what I was feeling or thinking in a certain moment that led me to a certain person. Um winning then when they might not win now. And I feel as though the example I've given for this before is the last picture show where in the recording of that episode, um, I gave it to Alan Burstyn um, when for years I had agreed with Cloris Leachman's win because I think that's a fabulous performance. But um, going into that episode, preparing for it, I had never really paid much attention to Ellen Burstyn and so going into it for homework, I did because, you know, of course she was a nominee and I'd have to talk about her. So I was noticing things that I had never really noticed before. Um, and I think that's sort of what led me to being sort of newly infatuated with that performance. And that's what led me to pick it on the day. But since then, I've sort of drifted back to um, Cloris Leachman. So that's I wouldn't call that a regret. But it's one that I would um, not pick today if I if we had redone it. I would go with Cloris instead. Do you have a year that you just think is the worst year that we've covered, whether it be a certain category? Because like I still think that 1986 as a whole isn't great, but that supporting actress lineup is just the worst. Um, but do you have a year that you feel that? Um, 1994 for me is a pretty underwhelming year. Um, yeah, that was a hard one for me to kind of find something that I really loved. I, I ended up picking a couple that I just found the most interesting of the bunch. But, um, yeah, 1994 for me is pretty underwhelming. I would probably gut that entire lineup and start over. Yeah, I was thinking, as as I said that too, I was also thinking about uh, supporting actor 2020, considering I gave that to nobody. <laughs> that was also a really bad year, in my opinion. Um, so, but yeah, it, it's it's nuts. Um, I hope you had fun through all this, though. Oh, I did, yeah. It was, it was a truly great time. Good, good. Um, now, we will, as we have stated before pretty much a yearly episode at least for the Oscars going forward until of course we pull the plug, which one day it will happen. Um, fuck, we might not even do this year. Who knows? Um, but you know, we, you know, we just want to thank you guys again with everything and your support and your back and forth on Twitter and just everything all in all. And on Patreon, you guys are amazing. There's still some of you guys on there and we still get new people subscribing to Patreon, which is wild to me i'm sure wild to you well we still we do have like two years of content on yeah. there so even though we're not adding new content 
um, every month like we were before, people can subscribe and, you know, go back and uh, listen to those episodes um, until, you know, you've listened to what you want to listen to and unsubscribe. But um, they are still there to listen to if you feel like it. Yeah. Anything else that you want to do to, you know, before we close out here? Um, to give you a, a bit of an answer, I suppose, to your question, I know she was not your winner, but one that I, I was surprised by how much you liked her. This is the first one that popped into my head, but I kept trying to find another answer because I know she I'm, I know she was not your actual winner is um, Amy um, Madigan mm. in Twice in a Lifetime. I remember I was very dismissive of that performance and like actively confused as to wh- how she earned the nomination. And then you came through and we're like, actually, she's amazing. And I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> so so that's an example, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You know, Amy Madigan is, I think, unrightfully forgotten in that lineup. Um, And, you know, she's got a lot of competition that that year. But, I mean, she's actively better than the winner in that category, in my opinion. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's it's, it's a little – it's a gem that is hidden beneath a lot of rubble. So it's crazy. Go Amy Madigan. Yes. Um, Brandon, for the last time – until we see you again, I am Joey Gentile. And I'm Brandon Stanwick. And this has been Academy Queens, a series that was your LGBT guide through the Academy Awards per decade per category. Asterisk. <laughs> and on the count of three, we're going to say farewell so long. I'll be just in our friends for the last time. One, two, three. Bye. Bye.